I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Steve D., a systemic psychotherapist working in the NHS. He's also an author of such books as A Gnostic's Progress, Magic and the Path of Awakening, and The Heretic's Journey, Spiritual Free Thinking for Difficult Times. With Julian Vane and Nikki Weird, he blogs at the Blog of Baphomet, where he reviewed my book, Scansion in Psychoanalysis and Art, The Cut in Creation. Links to his work can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Also, I have to take this moment to mention that I've recently started working with GCAS, the Global Center for Advanced Study. Based in Dublin, their classes are online. I'll be teaching in the PhD in Philosophy program, as well as for their certificate in psychoanalysis. More information about that can also be found in the text accompanying this episode. Furthermore, one of the things Steve and I talk about in this episode is my upcoming residency at Morbid Anatomy Museum. These talks will be Sundays in September, also online, at 2 o'clock in New York, which is 11 a.m. on the West Coast, California, and also 7 p.m. London or 8 p.m. here in Sweden and Central Europe. For more information, visit my website, psychartcult.org. That's P-S-Y-C-H-A-R-T-C-U-L-T dot org. Or Morbid Anatomy Events at morbidanatomy.org slash events. Also in this episode, we mention Mary Wilde's upcoming projections on Marilyn Monroe's screen persona via the Freud Museum, London. That's this Friday and Saturday, August 20th and 21st. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films' YouTube channel, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube, or search for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. So I was thinking about what this, this interplay between spirituality and, and psychotherapy and where, where it is in my own journey and how it was triggered. And so for me, um, I was a really preco- a spiritually precocious child who uh, was really into yoga and Buddhism from about the age of 10. Um, but then because of a struggle during my mid-adolescence with my own kind of bisexuality and sense of self, I got very involved with quite a conservative form of Christianity. Um, this is in South Wales, where my um, family originate from in Cardiff. Um, so I was very involved in that. And as a result of that, uh, I went to a very conservative theological seminary at about the age of 19 with a view to probably becoming like an Anglican priest or something. So, you know, so I was. But all the while, I I, I was struggling quite deeply with um both the, the truth claims of that tradition and the exclusivity of it. And, and it was in the course of that study, doing that undergrad degree in theology, which I, I completely loved. I'm, I, it was, I was very passionate about it. But when we came across the work of Carl Jung, it was like you know, the, 
the, the, the scales fell away from my eyes. And here were these ideas about synchronicity, about the shadow, about the unconscious. And I thought, what is this? And, and then obviously part of Jung's backstory as well was about um, the Nag Hammadi texts and Gnosticism and the Jung Codex. So there was this, yeah, this very uh, interesting door being opened. Um, and I got to the end of that study and I thought I am not ready to become a, to have my, my income and my housing connected to my metaphysics. I thought that's far too treacherous because if, if you know, my, my income and my housing is dependent on what I believe and that's quite fluid, how's that gonna go? Um, so I thought, okay, what am I gonna do? I was, I was really interested in working with adults with learning disabilities. So I did that for four years. I taught uh, at a day center in London. Um, and then I went and did, because I kind of had to, a master's in social work and a diploma in social work um, in London. And then myself and my partner decided to move down away from London to Devon because, because I was brought up in Australia partly. Uh, I've got this very deep love of uh, surfing. Um, so I thought, hey, if I'm gonna be a social worker and being a social worker is kind of tough, um, I wanna do it by the sea and probably not in the thick of a really gritty <laughs> urban environment. Um, so yeah, I came to um, Devon about, oh, about 25 years ago to practice as a social worker in a mental health team. So in a community mental health team as part of the National Health Service. So, you know, people with quite significant and, and serious mental health issues, um, very passionate about that work. But really early on, I was sitting with clients in the room doing my work and I thought, I've got to get more skills. You know, what am I doing? I'm in a room, I'm in a space with another human being how do I relate to, the, to them and how do I do it better? And so um, I was in the first wave of people who trained in dialectical behavior therapy about 20 odd years ago. I did that, which I kind of enjoyed, but it was a bit clunky. You know, the DBT manuals are like telephone directories. They're very uh, intense. And then I got very interested in um, psychodynamic ways of working because I thought oh there's this science bit of therapy that but there's this art bit of therapy and how do I kind of balance those two things and the psychodynamic way of working seemed to offer a more kind of um, art sensitive kind of way of working and so I was I did uh, a foundation course and I was working clinically at the time with um, a relatively famous guy called Professor Jeremy Holmes, who's a big um, academic about Bowlby and Winnicott. So I was really privileged to be working with him. But I was doing that work and, and seeing clients um, within the NHS trying to do some psychodynamic work. And I was meeting lots of um, people who were survivors of childhood sexual abuse, who were experiencing difficulties in their adult attachment relationships with their partner or their family. And so I was doing this work, you know, week in, week out, hearing these stories. And, and I, one day I just had this realization, hey, I wonder if I could do this, you know, better if I could have the partner in the room, what would that be like to be able to look at that attachment relationship live and to hear both perspectives on it? So. I got really interested in family therapy and went and did a master's in family therapy um, and got accredited as a um, psychotherapist, systemic psychotherapist. Um, and that was about, I don't know, 14 years ago. So, so, and so I did that. Um, and all the, all the meanwhile, still being a social worker as well. And then five years ago, um, I left that team and currently I run um, a, a small specialist team uh, that works with people um, 
with issues around overdose and self-injury. So I kind of specialize in that. People who've come through accident and emergency in our local hospital. Um, but I also run uh, a family therapy team that sees families once a week or, you know, families, both biological and chosen families. So, um, yeah, so I kind of, um, I'm still really enthusiastic about that work. And, uh, but all the while, um, I suppose a, par a parallel story has been um, my kind of journey out of the Christian faith community, probably about, oh goodness, about 27 years ago. And kind of through that doorway of Jung's work, um, becoming very interested in magic, um, and having pursued that in a number of different groups and traditions, um, and that's still very much part of my life, um, and, and kind of writing a bit about that as well. So, um, yeah, it's been a, and I kind of see the, the relationship between my magical practice and my therapeutic practice as quite symbiotic, um, in, in the sense that, um, I think magic works best when we really allow ourselves to listen to situations, to creativity, to what's emerging. Um, and I, you know, and that always takes me back to kind of Freud's idea of free-floating intent. You know, how do we how do we sit with another human being in a room and kind of fully listen or as fully as we can to what's coming forth from them and for them. So yeah, strong parallels and um, yeah, I, I kind of, yeah, both both are informing each other. Yeah, I like, I love that idea. And I, I always think of it as kind of, they're both kind of like tuning in. Like people think about magic as like people being like, I want this to happen and then like making the thing happen. But that's not really how it works. It's more like kind of tuning into like, what's going on and the environment and you and yourself and your unconscious and kind of helping the synchronicities along and then the synchronicities kind of let you know that you're on the right track when they're happening yeah yeah i i, I love that um that famous taoist story about um the butcher who um has never sharpened his knife and and you know he's a master butcher and they and they say to him you know how have you never sharpened your knife? He said, because I pay attention to where, you know, the, the sinews meet the bone. And, and, you know, and so like a, like a diamond cutter, you know, you, you spend a lot of time looking at the gem before you apply the cut. And I think, I think when we begin magical practice, especially when we kind of get bamboozled by all this glamorous technology and risky, spooky kind of stuff, you can kind of, you know, have all the, the bells and whistles, um, uh, you know, and, and smells and bells, but actually the kind of further I go along in it, the more kind of minimalist it becomes. And it more, it's more about, as you say, like finding those hairline cracks in reality um, so that you can apply just the necessary amount of energy needed to kind of open that out a little bit. Um, so, yeah, that, those listening skills, um, you know, I think Jan Fries calls it deep listening, that sense of, you know, kind of trying to let go and have that beginner's mind. Totally. And I love the description of your therapeutic practice as well. So that's one of the things I love about this field is that um, your practice can keep evolving with your interests. It's not like something static where you're in an office and doing the same thing all the time. It's like there's so many different avenues that your practice can take. Yeah, and, and often it's when you kind of meet an impasse, you know, that you realize whether it's, you know, an impasse in yourself, you know, a defense in yourself or, or just your ability to manage a situation with clients. Um, it can be very intense and magical you know sitting with people especially you know in the context of processing trauma or or those sort of things where you you can be in quite a vulnerable place personally at least I can at times feel very vulnerable um 
and and I suppose that kind of relates to you know a really interesting therapeutic dilemma about the use of self and the experience of self in therapy and um, one of the good the nice things for me in at least group systemic practice is because I'm often working with a live supervision team in the room um, the use of self can feel a little bit safer because it's in front of other people and and the sort of relevance and the boundaries around that use of self can be um, supported a little bit more. Um, so yeah, I, so that you know you don't the disclosure about self and the use of self can be more um, appropriate and not too self-indulgent. I love that as well. Um, and I have to thank you. You said you mentioned your writing, and we can uh, we can link to the blog here. And I have to thank you for reviewing my book. Oh well, you're welcome. Uh, I was I was really excited about it because, um, as you know, that the last yeah the last one I wrote, um, you know, the Heretic's Journey, which is kind of yeah, it's it's the second book probably in a trilogy, but but it's but it looked at a lot of similar territory to you were writing about Instantian. And, and I was really excited to see your writing kind of putting some of the more kind of theoretical scaffolding, but also having such a, um, it was like zooming in and zooming out of a kind of cultural landscape. And, um, and for me, you know, the, the, I think I said in the review that, as much as I love a lot of the um, work, the very kind of spiritist um, attempts to recapture some of the grimoire traditions from like early magical history, um, there seems to be kind of like a reaction and a dismissal of psychological models within magic as, as if they're bad, you know, or they're reductionist. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's got to be both and rather than either or. And, um, but I also love it when another colleague, practitioner and, and therapist kind of really values the psychological model and kind of, um, kind of strengthens that current. It was, yeah, that's why I got excited about your book. It was a great one. Thank you. And I love that because um, I feel like a lot of people that are magical practitioners kind of know a lot of these artists as people like in the magical kind of scene like what used to seem to be more underground now seems less underground um and knew like this kind of current of work but I feel like in the mainstream not so much and even people like like Genesis for example who's pretty well known um like I had friends in New York who knew Jen's work but did not know that Jen was a magical practitioner and I was like what exactly do you think that she's doing in her work? You know, it's like uh, when you see these sigils with like hair and blood and cutouts. Like, what did you think? Like, what did you think that was? It's just an art piece. But it's amazing that they, that that work can be shown and taught, and that aspect of it, which is so essential, which is it, it just it's a magical working that you're now showing its art. It wasn't meant to be an art piece, you know, in a gallery. Um, it's just completely left out. And of course, I didn't write about that too much in the book because it's more of an academic press just looking at psychoanalysis and art. Um, but I'm glad to bring the psychological side of it to people who like those artists. That's what really what I what I wrote it for was people who like those artists, a lot of people in the magical community, and then talking a little bit about psychoanalytic theories in relation to artists that people like. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, I think Jen's an amazing example because, you know, when you've got someone who's, um, the canon of their work is so vast and so multimedia and across such a time span, as you say, you know, for some people it's just about the music and for some people it's about, um, yeah, about kind of the Pandrogeny kind of project and all of those sort of things. And, but, but yeah, when you, when you dig into some of her history and, and just the, um, where that was coming from in terms of, you know, um, Geisen's work and Burroughs and, and, all, and all of those things, you know, it's, um, 
it gives you an extra dimension into what's happening. But also, I think, and I think Carl has been really helpful in thinking about this idea about occulture and how this kind of symbiotic relationship exists between creativity in the wider sense and magical work and how um, I don't like the term Western magical tradition, but you know that that idea has its own kind of artistic kind of um, kind of canon and body of output that's really valuable. And I think if we're, if you're not understanding the kind of spiritual and hermetic sort of undercurrent underneath, you're kind of missing a trick, really. Yeah, and I mean, some people that are some artists and writers that are really popular in all of culture, you know, their magical practices have been completely left out. And I think that's changing now, which is wonderful. But like, like Yates, like Mangion, you know, people were magical practitioners and, and were in groups. Um, but like when you read art history books or literature books, it's like totally left out. It's really mind boggling to me. Yeah, and also I, I think the way in which, you know, and I think about chaos magic, especially, and Topi, and all of those things, you know, that, that actually there's also like a, like a reverse loop as well, where the, the creation of art inspired magical practice, you know, and Spare is the great example of that, where, you know, you have someone who, you know, is tapping into surrealism and the early origins of psychoanalysis and the ideas about the unconscious and is producing art and then that art loops back and you know with the alphabet of desire and so and the idea of construction of sigils um, and also and probably most importantly for me you know the, the use of the unconscious in magical practice um, there's an amazing essay in um, Ramsey Duke's book uh, I think it's called what, what I did in my on, on my holidays or something and there's a great book um, a great essay that compares Crowley as as the magician of the conscious mind and the, and the kind of solar phallic will in comparison to the sort of um, spare as the magician of the unconscious and the kind of um, the mother and yeah and and the vagina and lots of kind of amazing things and um and i really like that idea of and probably goes back to this kind of taoist idea of magic about it being releasing things onto the sea of the unconscious rather than about forcefully trying to manipulate the universe totally um, yeah, and I think that's something, like you mentioned, like not liking the terms of much Western magical tradition, but I think that's something also that I'm trying to like bring into awareness more is like, like these, these European cultures, British and here in Sweden and everywhere, all had pagan religions <laughs> before Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I heard a talk last summer, I, w I went to this uh, online summit called the Shamanism Summit, and there was a wonderful um, Native American speaker named Lila June who um, talked about her own kind of history. I'm going to have her on the podcast soon, actually, which I'm really excited about. But her own history as being like part indigenous and like part kind of settler and this kind of internal battle that she has within her from these two sides. And she said this thing that really just like really hit me. Um, where she's, you know, she says she's often asked herself, like, why, why, why would people do this to us? Like, why would they just like wipe us out the way they did? Um, and then she came to the realization that, you know, this is what was done to them. And you mentioned also like coming from a Christian background before, but like this like monotheism of Christianity was forced upon all of these European peoples and their religions were taken away and their personal practices and kind of cultures were taken away, wiped out and turned into Christianity. And she realized that that was like them reenacting this like repetition of the trauma that had happened to them by like then going around the world and kind of trying to spread Christianity and like colonization and capitalism from there. Um, and I thought that was really on point and something that I think about a lot now and I, I want to talk about more with people because um, 
also in the States, at least, you know, a lot of people are like looking for more like spiritual practices and they do turn to like more indigenous practices from the States or, you know, in like in Miami where I'm from, the Santeria, which people brought up from Cuba and the Caribbean. Um, but people like I've also seen people online that are from those traditions saying that like the European or the white people need to kind of look into their ancestry and see what's there and reconnect to their own like personal histories um, because they once had spiritual practices too. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like with this global time where everything's like in such crisis that it would be really helpful for more people um, of all kinds to, to kind of connect to their own ancestry, their own bloodlines, but also adopted ancestry and ideas um, and just like develop more personal spiritual practices as opposed to just what you're given by like monoculture and monotheism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. And I, 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 but what's also interesting for me, and I, I'm a bit of a church history kind of geek, um, is that that, that that attempt to enforce the purity of belief has been um, a failed project from the very outset for Christianity. So you have this kind of dominant discourse about um, you know, orthodox Christianity and religion, and then all the time weaving alongside is this um, heretical um, groups of people who take inspiration from this idea and they might take inspiration from the figure of Christ or the logos or however you want to frame it and then they weave it into their own sort of heretical mashup that is is as you say a fusion between like uh, native earth-based stuff um, with Christianity with folk traditions and so the irony of course is that often magic I think is um, generated in as a dialectic so when we have a tension between an orthodoxy and a heresy that free song between those two things that you know um, can create something fantastic and you know kind of thinking about you know kind of things like Levian Satanism being a really great example that you know Levian Satanism was only really going to make sense in America because it was so kind of you know, so evangelical, so Protestant, and therefore that sort of radical polemic just um, was fantastic and disruptive and again, very artistic. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting to see how those two, you know, those two things sit alongside each other, not necessarily to gain an easy synthesis, but almost like, um, more like a dialogical mind idea where they're kind of all sitting together in dynamic tension and the tension um, creates unique and kind of creative emergent kind of patterns for individuals. And um, yeah, I find that really exciting. I'm gonna have Lance Barton on the podcast soon. I'm so excited. She just wrote a new book and I don't know if you saw, but Carl and, and Blanche are giving a talk together uh, in the end of September, September 26th, we're doing, you know, we do our psychoanalysis art in the occult conferences. And so we're doing this one kind of online um, and through Morbid Anatomy Museum. And so on the, there are all the Sundays uh, in September. So on Sunday the 5th, I'm giving a talk about Freud and his occult leanings. And then this other analyst philosopher named Isabel Millar, she's talking about, she talks about AI and, um, and psychoanalysis. She specifically talks about like sex robots and she's developing <laughs> this. Yeah, it's great. She's great. Yeah. And then she's developing this thing called patsy politics, which she's talking about like, uh, you know, there's like necropolitics and she's talking about it, taking it to the next level of this like politics of suffering um, mm -hmm. and like, kind of getting off on that suffering. Um, and then on the next week, um, on the 12th, we're having Mary Wild, which if you haven't checked out Mary Wild, she does all this stuff on uh, psychoanalysis and film at the Freud Museum in London. Okay. Um, and she does in-person things, but since the pandemic, she's been doing her classes online. Uh, and they're always amazing. She does like different directors, like she had one on David Lynch and she had one on Lars Montreer and 
her next one is uh, talking about Marilyn Monroe. She like wrote a book on Marilyn Monroe that she hasn't published yet, but I hope she publishes because she's really great. Wow. Uh, and that's her next one, which is mm. Marilyn Monroe is on the 20th and 21st of August. So coming up, but she's going to talk about because Morbid Anatomy Museum, they're all about like medical, like weird medical science that's like mm. antiquated, mm. you know, um, old yeah. medical practices. And um, they love taxidermy and things like that. So it's all like in that theme. So Isabel's got her like uh, artificial intelligence, like sex bots, which also LeVay, I also want to talk to Blanche about that because yeah. LeVay is really forward thinking with his mm. like, um, with his friends that were, <laughs> were not human. Yeah. Um, but he like made mannequins and things and like had a whole bar in the basement of his house and like kind of was before this like idea of having these artificial human uh, companions, he like made them and like hung out with them and had his own kind of artificial human companion thing going on, um, which I don't think a lot of people know. So things like that that are really interesting um, about him. Yeah, and, and that kind of, for me, that goes back to the idea within um, LaVey and Satanism about um, the total environment, you know, and, and the idea of like the importance of aesthetic. Um, and I think that's a very magical idea about how our surroundings and what we surround ourselves with, you know, affects consciousness. Um, but I'm, I find it really interesting, this whole idea about, and we were talking about Stellark before we started, you know, about how the body is used in magic. Um, and, you know, working as I do with a lot of people who self injure, you know, one of the, one of the things that I get very interested in therapeutically is like, um, how can we develop a different relationship with the body, but one that doesn't necessarily reject somatic intensity? So, you know, it's really interesting. If you, if you did a Venn diagram between the self-injury, people who self-injure, and then people who get involved in powerlifting, there's a really big overlap because, you know, people are seeking an intensity within the body. And, um, and I think, you know, techniques like, Traditions, traditions like topi and chaos magic, are, are, I think, have been really, and the witch, witchcraft traditions, have been really cool in incorporating the body really fully. And um, yeah, I, 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 I remember um, Ron Athey talking about um, his experience as an adolescent or early adolescent Pentecostal, and you know the experience of, of the spirit in the body. And I, and I really related to that, you know, when I was involved in Christianity, my, my first kind of involvement was very sort of charismatic or Pentecostal. And I think my attraction to it um, in a very queered sort of way was, this is through my body and, and I can feel this and I, and, and, and for me also that was connected to my like early love of Hatha yoga. It was like, hey, here's this way of experimenting and feeling the body and, you know, how, yeah, I'm, I've continued to be, you know, um, interested in those traditions that use the body in that sort of way. And um, I'm really thoughtful about people like um, Alkistis, who, you know, and her Bhutto practice and, you know, as a, expression of, of the witch you know that that's really fascinating to me as well well that's it's funny you bring her up because her and peter are the are the talk on the 19th as part of the residency i, I think so, i I'm saw gonna, that yeah i'll send you the link because it's a really good it's a really good crew um mary wilde on the 12th is doing taxidermy and psycho that's what she's talking about taxidermy in wow. the film psycho because apparently he was a taxidermist or was into taxidermy, which I did not know. Um, and then uh, we have Anna Biller talking about The Love Witch, the movie The Love Witch. Um, yeah. and so that's going to be fun. And then Peter and Alkistis are on the 19th. Um, and he's talking about his work, the two Antichrists, about Elvin Hubbard and Jack Parsons. And then uh, the last one on the 26th is Blanche talking about death imagery and Satanism and Carl talking about memento mori forever. <laughs> so wow, that's, 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 that's a very heady menu, isn't it? That's a very heady menu. But yeah, I, I'm, I noticed I was reading um, the description of Peter and Alkistus' talk and 
And, and at the, toward the end, it referenced Peter's idea of space witchcraft, which I thought, hey, that sounds cool. Um, if you haven't read that book yet, you should get it. The Two Antichrists new yeah, book. I've read Apocalyptic Witchcraft, which I really enjoyed. Amazing. But I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't read the new one. Um, but, it, and it also kind of echoes, um, what, I think one of the first books that I wrote was with Julian Vane from the blog of Baphomet. And we wrote a book called Chaos Craft, which was looking at the, the fusion, I suppose. So it was born as the outcome of a, of a um, what we called a chaos coven that we ran for like seven years together. Mm. And the book is kind of like the overspill diary of that working together and uh, with a group of practitioners. Uh, and it looks at how that kind of postmodern chaos magic current kind of fuses or might fuse with like the witch archetype um in, and in quite a queer embodied sort of way so yeah that, that's all sort of territory I, I really like the sound of and I'll have to check out some of that morbid anatomy stuff it sounds great yeah I'll send you the links that's one thing we were also talking about before about the difference between like working this way and working in person as far as therapy but now that you brought up working with a group like a magical practitioner that's something I could say that would definitely be different that, that you couldn't really do over zoom well i do you know what you say that you say really? that so 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 <laughs> i know i know of um i know of groups that are doing ritual online um and i think i i think yeah i think if you try to do what you were doing in a room together and just replicate it fully um but I think one of the, the nice things about the chaos magic kind of tradition is that it's very adaptive. And I, and I know a lot of people are working, are designing rituals specifically to be deployed in an online setting. So that's oh, cool. really, that's really fascinating. I, I've been part of um, some, um, I'm kind of connected loosely to the French Gnostic tradition. And a friend of mine, she's a bishop in that um, tradition. and We've been doing some like um, Gnostic Vespers um, online, uh, which has been kind of, that's been kind of cool. Um, yeah, um, it takes a bit of practice and um, can be a bit clunky at times, but um, yeah, it's 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 good. Yeah. So I think it can be done, but like therapy, um, I think it takes just a little bit of recalibration. So I don't know how you know how did you find it when you first started you were ahead of the game because of your life circumstances and you know working therapeutically you know how did you find that change was it a big one for you yeah i mean that's true and um i know when all my friends were freaking out when covid started and going online and like it being so new i was just like mm, nothing's changed for me i've already been doing this yeah. for a few years uh so that was easy for me but um when I first moved, I mean, of course, I was moving countries at the same time, so that was a big shift. Mm. But all of the people that I saw were people I had been seeing for a long time already in okay. person in New York. So I think cool. that might have made the transition easier. And I had already yeah. had a couple people who like moved away, for example, and I gave them a referral somewhere else. And then like they called a few months later and were like, can I please just talk to you? I don't want to like start over with someone else things like that or I have somebody that travels for work they're an actor so they're always like traveling um so I see them on the road anyway um mm. so I didn't think it was too difficult in that way again and they were all also like under 30 like 30 or under so like people that are used to like being online a lot and have a lot of friendships and relationships online mm. um and yeah when I first left New York I felt like well you know, I think a great point of teletherapy also is like it makes it available for people who live more remotely and don't have access to a lot of people, uh, a lot of choices to see as far as therapists or analysts go. But of course, in New York, there's a million of them. <laughs> so I figured that everybody should just get a referral and see someone else. There were just a handful of people, like five people that were like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> 
and yeah. I was like okay you don't have to um so I kept seeing them and it was actually really nice and kind of grounding for me because you know for the first couple of years between uh, the U.S. and Sweden I was like working on my residency permit I didn't have like my residency status here yet so I had to like only be here as a like tourist basically and then I would have to go back to the states for months at a time and then and then I could come back for a few months and I did that for a couple of years um so it was really actually nice for me to have this kind of gr grounding of this like collective of people that I worked with that was like stabilizing for me in a way to be able to have that work throughout that transition and also just to be able to work right <laughs> like keep earning a living even though I was yeah. in between countries um and that's that that's just how I went to the telehealth um and it, yeah it was wonderful and that's why I think it's really good that people see how it works now because people move people are going to keep moving especially with climate and everything and um just for whatever reason and so it's nice to know that you have options um and job stability but in that way yeah I think I think it's one of the things I've noticed that's really interesting is about um, they were doing some research about I think this is specifically it was from the, the BPS, the British Psychology Society, about um, about people being more active, therapists being more active online and kind of getting exhausted because they were kind of feeling in a more kind of performative space and um, I don't know if that was because of the, not that I want to typecast psychologists because I work with some lovely psychologists, but, but um, I think certain therapies like CBT and things that are more kind of um, content heavy, um, you know, they, they felt they had to kind of, kind of inject more energy into the, the session to kind of keep it moving. I don't know. Yeah, I'm really interested in... Um, not that I work a lot with therapeutic abstinence. That's not really my style or my or my kind of training. But you know how we can work with silence and space a little bit more online and not feel so, I suppose, troubled by space. Yeah, absolutely. And because I'm an analyst, most people I see are just audio. It's not video. Um, if somebody like if for the people that are newer that I never saw them in person, if they if they call the first time and they want to talk to me video, you know, they can do that. People can really choose how they want to do their treatment, audio or video. But I always mention just like I used to mention in the office, like the couch and like the idea between behind how it's useful to like not be so caught up in like worrying about what the other person is thinking about what you're saying and how you can more easily kind of go into your kind of fantasies or free associations mm -hmm. when you're not like worried about engaging with another person um so I just tell them the same thing and then a lot of times people will start video and then after time they'll say like some they'll say that they realize that they want to try audio only or something will happen where like you know they have house guests or something so they need to go for a walk for a session because they can't have their normal session in the normal place and so they just do audio and then they go oh i do see how this is different you know <laughs> and then they end up sticking things like that happen yeah i i it was it was really interesting for me because the first couple of months i was just getting the hang of technology and i'm, and I'm using um specific nhs online platforms as well so um I was having to do quite a lot of audio calls and, and audio assessments with some quite some people in quite risky kind of situations. And <laughs> for the first couple of weeks, I was coming off the end of my day with like a huge headache because I was listening so hard. You know, I, I'm sure I was sitting there with like a permanent frown, um, trying to interpret, you know, the meaning of pauses and is this a good silence or a bad silence, you know? Um, but I think I, doing therapy by, by a phone, I'm, I'm sure I've got a lot better at it. Um, uh, yeah, and it's also interesting how you tune in differently if you've just got one sense tuning in. It's interesting. Yeah, and, um, and I've heard other therapists like on listservs that I'm on, you know, really worried when they first started doing kind of remote treatment well, like, oh, is the silence, like, did they, did they go, did they hang up, did this call drop, and things like that, but I don't know about you, but I can tell, like, if it's just the person being silent, or if the calls actually drop, 
and like maybe not exactly immediately but like you see a sign this isn't that that long or you could just look at the phone or the computer and see whether it's hung up or not like it's not that complicated to figure that out yeah <laughs> i think that's no. a fair for stone anxiety <laughs> but it is a learning curve i think you know and um yeah and it's also interesting for me you know i, I think i said to you that I'm slowly working back to more face-to-face. -face. I've spent like the last year and a half doing probably like 95% of therapy online or via phone. And now we're just with masks on, socially distance, um, beginning to see clients in physical space. Um, and it's just, it's really interesting just about my own anxiety going back, how clients are responding to being and and for those clients who who are now being given the option to come in physically and and often wanting that um yeah just to see how that's going and um yeah it's a work in progress but i think you know someone said to me the, the other day do you think it's changed do you think we'll ever go back to seeing you know um 98% of clients face to face and i said no i don't think we ever will because We've demonstrated we can do this, and um, and and as you said, there are. I live in a really big rural environment that some of my clients need to travel like an hour to get to a session to see me. And if I can do that like that because I can just ring them up, then and they've got childcare responsibilities or whatever, it, it's really advantageous. So. Um, yeah, I, I think I think we have got to adapt, and it's and it's also, you know, I think we can hang on to things and think these are essential. You know, I've got I've got to be in the room, or you know, whatever. Um, but actually, when we have to let go of things, it's interesting how we evolve, you know, and we we shift. So yeah, it's it's been a good lesson. Absolutely, and I'm a big fan of. I've learned to just kind of take the patient's lead, you know, take the client's lead and see what they feel comfortable with instead of like having like my way that I do things, you know, like I said, like when, when I first schedule people, I don't tell them how to call me. I just kind of see how they call, like, do they call video or do they call audio, you know? And some people just call audio and assume it's that way. And some people call video. Um, so I just kind of take their lead and see, you know, let them tailor the treatment a little bit. Um, and I think people like that and being able to kind of have it in their hands a bit more and feel more in control of their treatment instead of like being dictated what they're supposed to do. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's also changing the way that people um, are following their chosen kind of spiritual path or however you want to phrase that. I think, you know, I know. I know Julian Bain, you know, a close friend of mine, he's been doing a lot of online mentoring magically with folks across the world. And I think suddenly it's opened up people's imagination to, hey, I can, I can access this person who's halfway across the planet and have the, and this great learning experience with them. Um, yeah, and, and, and then that can be the doorway potentially to accessing something more locally it's turned me on to something um but yeah I, and I, I think that's that's a great thing that's come out of this as well um yeah yeah because it's also hard to find a therapist and magical practitioners that you really gel with you know, it's not that easy <laughs> so you know to be able to access people access people further away can be really useful <laughs> yeah especially if you know um whether you're starting out and, and you're really new to all this stuff and, and you just want some help, um, you know, with the magical stuff, kind of working out what resonates most with your, who you are as a person and what your interests are, but also like further down the line, you know, when you've, you've looked at a variety of paths and you're trying to hone in into, onto something specific, you know, um, and then being able to access those experts, you know, whether it's in like runic magic or the left-hand path or whatever the thing is, you know, um, yeah, have it, being able to access those people uh, and those support groups is, is fantastic.
Yeah, and how, that's amazing that you had a cousin for seven years. It's a long time. In my experience, when I've like worked with a group, it's been like really amazing and intense and generative for a period, and then it kind of blows up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was amazing. It was it was a good group, and it certainly evolved over those seven years. You know, it um, it started as you know as a kind of chaos magic working group, and uh, we had it was very open and you know the style uh, that's often used um, in those contexts is that each person brings a ritual to a meeting and and then we share them within like a framework that we create so you know within a cast circle or sacred space you'll then each person will take turn presenting a practice um, or and, and there's a really interesting I think what's really key about that is it's about consent because so for example I might um, share a practice that I want to do and someone else might think you know no I'm not in the right space for that or I don't feel comfortable what you're asking me to do and and so there's a, a really nice process of transparency that you have to evolve in describing the work you want to do so that people can opt in or opt out and and I think because you kind of share the leadership it's quite a flattened hierarchy in that sort of context um yeah that yeah I, I really enjoyed that way of working but certainly over the years as it went on we developed this very big interest in kind of witchcraft and and that archetype and those archetypes um and then started, so in, chaos, in the kind of classic chaos magic schema, there's like eight colors of magic and, and um, you can kind of align those colors with the eight um, kind of Celtic fire festivals, you know, within paganism. So you have, for example, you have, um, you, know, you have black magic at, at, at Halloween and you would have, um, I think it's red magic at Lamas at the moment because it's all about cutting corn and things like that. So you can correspond these forms of magic to a specific seasonal event, whether you're in the northern or southern hemisphere. And then, so people would tend to bring rituals that were linked to that thematic color. So, for example, I think it's yellow. Oh, God. What, see, this is where I forget. I know, <laughs> but, but, you know, so people would bring a thematic kind of group of working and it would kind of, if it, if it was working well, there'd be a synchronicity when, when the different types of work and we would also kind of set up an agenda so that there was a flow in the work. Um, yeah, but we would often be working together for, you know, four or five hours. So it was quite intense. It sounds amazing. Also, can we talk about whales? Yeah, of course we can. Talk <laughs> I'm such about a huge whales. fan of whales. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Um, I so I was I was born in Cardiff, you know, which is the capital of Wales. I have not got a Welsh accent at all, but um, but and my sister uh, and my mum still living in in Wales, but um, it's amazing and um, I love it. And I was back there about a week ago. So, um, and you know, I'm moving to Australia and then moving back to Wales. I've got a real appreciation for it. And um, what do you love about Wales? Why do you like Wales so much? I don't know. It's just such a magical place. I feel like everywhere I turned was just like I don't know a discovery. And of course, all the slates and the coast and I don't know the landscape. It just I just felt mm. so wonderful there. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it is absolutely beautiful. Um, and for me also, there's something about um, the kind of the, the socialism of, of kind of Welsh culture, you know, not universally, but, you know, kind of through coal mining and um, the kind of the disestablished church within Wales, so the chapel, what's called chapel culture, you know, where, um, there's like a, an independence of spirit, which I think, you know, you see in a lot of Celtic nations and a lot of kind of Celtic pride, whether it's Scotland or Ireland. Um, 
yeah so for me um and also magically you know in in terms of, and these are these are reimagined traditions but things like the druid tradition and the Eisteddfod, and you know that, those kind of reawakening of you know you, you mentioned um yates you know that kind of reawakening of the romantic you know potentially romanticized but the celtic spirit and um inspiration and creativity and, and the poetic spirit i think those are all the bardic spirit those are all fantastic things yeah yeah i have to go to scotland i haven't been there and my last name oh, sinclair wow. is scottish um and there's a good psychoanalytic scene in edinburgh so um i have to make my way there at some point i love oh. ireland dublin i love wales and I've been to Yorkshire a, a few times to visit Val Denham and Gail Denham. And I love it up there too. And of course I've been to yeah. London, but I haven't been to Scotland yet. And I oh, haven't yeah. been to Southern, Southern England, like on the coast yet either. Okay, well, we, we live, um, both Julian, Nikki Weird and I all live in Devon within about 10 miles of each other. So when the stars align, and and the, and the uh, Boss Castle Museum mm. of Witchcraft and Magic is only like an hour down the road from us, so it's got to happen That's at some point. That's a must see. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And I want to visit Derek Jarman's place one day too, like make a pilgrimage over there. Yeah, that's got to be done as well. But um, and we're we're also just an hour, about an hour and a quarter from Glastonbury, so there's lots of very cool things around. It's very nice. And you can actually, because now that also that the pandemic happened, I'm very not into flying. I also had to fly a lot in the past few years between the U.S. and Sweden when I was moving. Mm. And so now I'm just like really not into flying. So I'm trying to think of like how I can get around by boats and trains. And you can actually take, if you go over to the western side of Sweden to Gothenburg, you can take a boat over to England and Carl apparently used to do that all the time when he was like a teenager to go to shows in London and like wow. hang out with Jen and stuff like that just take like a boat over and of course the boat was like a free zone where you could drink or whatever and just like overnight you get you, you stay on the boat overnight drinking and then you, sh you show up in London <laughs> in the morning uh, so I love that that Carl yeah. used to do that but I think that would be f a fun way to get over there that would be great and also Carl is just so hardcore it's just like like, yeah, that that kind of level of commitment is really impressive. Yeah, but he gets it from his dad. His dad in the 1950s, when he was a teenager, he used to take the boat over to New York from Sweden, and he used to work <laughs> his way over washing dishes on these boats to wow. get free passage to go to New York to go to jazz clubs and see the jazz musicians. So it's like then you can see where Carl comes from. That. It's suddenly <laughs> making a lot of sense isn't it you know that's amazing that's yeah amazing. and he had a he had Stockholm's first jazz club in uh called the golden circle and there's actually like a record series that's the golden circle records with all mm. these different great jazz musicians that played there and you can hear Carl's dad like introducing them in Swedish in the beginning it's so cute yeah and there's, <laughs> there's also like a really kind of thinking about aesthetics and like jazz and I was just thinking about Sammy Davis Jr. and the Church of Satan, you know, it's right. like that kind of smoky, slightly sleazy, but lovely kind of um, environments as kind of expressions of kind of creativity and kind of decadence in the nicest sense, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And yeah, yeah, that's suddenly who Carl is, is suddenly making a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and I think also, like you said, I think Levee and Satanism, I think Levee can be a lot more appreciated now, like in the current culture where people understand like performance more and performance art and like gender and identity as performance. And, you know, people are talking about things that way a lot more than they were in the 60s. And um, I think that uh, I think that he could have a, a new kind of generation of an audience in that way where they see like, like the art and the magic in what he was doing as and also the like blasphemy like you were talking about before like the heretical kind of current but it wasn't just that it was also like an art and and magic to it and how art and magic 
have this kind of performative spaces. Um, and, and even in, with a recent guest I was talking, who I don't think is a magical practitioner, but he was talking about like early religions um, that work more with the earth and dancing in the body and fire and things like that. You know, it is a performance. The rituals are performances and they are magical acts and they are like performance art. They, it is it, mm. like the first art are these kind of magical rituals and practices. Yeah, and, and I also think um, the, the contribution of LeFay to the birth of chaos magic is hugely undervalued because if you look at Western occultism before LeVay, a lot of it was very still very belief orientated. And um, where LeVay is kind of very, um, you know, he just says, these are symbols, this is psychology, this is biology, but it's, but it, but in, in the same way that chaos magic takes the idea of belief and says, it's not, it, it, you know, you apply your belief to a given paradigm at a given point, and that's where magic happens. And I think, um, yeah, the, the, the contribution of LeVay, you know, um, to that, is something that I think people are only beginning to get their head around. Yeah, and he wanted to get away from, like he talked about before, like all, all it was that you could access were these kind of more hierarchical orders where you had to be initiated on these different levels and that, you know, that's all well and good, but like where, like he, he just wanted it to be like for everyone, like you don't need to like join an order or you don't need to like go through these stages of initiation. You don't have to have belief in like, other entities or a higher power you can just be within yourself yeah that idea of initiation um as psychological transformation you know which is like a really therapeutic goal isn't it you know how do i become yeah you know that idea you know within the temple of set of kefa of becoming you know how how do we become who we're born to be and, and i think that's like a magical project but that's a therapeutic project as well. You know, when um, you can see when clients are really getting what's opening up for them, that, that, that they, they're beginning to see their own potential as a human being. And that's just, a, that's great. Well, I know you're on your holiday, so I don't <laughs> want to take up too much of your time, but do you have anything else that you wanted to mention that we didn't get to? No, I mean, I suppose I, I'm kind of currently writing a book at the moment, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's on the, it's called Chaos Monastics. Hopefully it will be coming out sometime next year, but it's, it's looking at the idea of within the chaos magic kind of tradition, Pete Carroll talked about this thing called a chaos monasticism, which was like a period of dedicated magical practice um, over a certain period of time. It's kind of a bit like the Abramelin working, um, but it can be much more fluid than that. And so I'm currently writing a book on that, uh, which is kind of looking at the idea of magical intensity and the body. And um, there's probably a lot in there about masochism. <laughs> well, but, but that should be interesting. Yeah, that's coming out hopefully next year. It's currently with my lovely editor, Nikki Weird, who's um, trying to make sense of my writing. So um, yeah, that would be good. Hopefully that'll come out and be entertaining. Yeah, and then when it does, you can come back on and talk about it. Great, oh, that'd be lovely. Yeah, and I'm also glad you brought up Topi. And I think what I'll do, since everyone might not know what Topi is, is that Carl gave a great lecture on Topi and I've been thinking of putting it into the Rendering Unconscious podcast soon. Um, just because I think it's a great lecture and topic, but maybe I'll put it in right after this episode so that people can familiarize themselves with the Temple of Psychic Youth. Fantastic. And I suppose I would say that um, if people want to check out some more of my writing, um, the blog of baphomet.com is um, a place where lots of our writing is for free. Um, and also Julian Baines and Nikki Weirds. Um, so yeah, check that out and it will have links to other other books um, that we've all written. So yeah, and it's, it's a very kind of creative place. And there's also some links 
to Julian's mentoring stuff if, if people are interested in that. Perfect. Great. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Steve D. For links to his work, as well as to Mary Wilde's projection series on Marilyn Monroe's screen persona via the Freud Museum London, and also links to my series at Morbid Anatomy Museum this September, Sundays online. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3 C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors.